There's a way I like to start um, when, when I teach, and that's to do something called a territorial acknowledgement. And that's to acknowledge that we are on the in Treaty 1 territory, and this is the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe, the Cree, the Oji Cree, the Dakota, and the Dene peoples, and it's the homeland of the Métis Nation. And I believe that one of, one of the uh, graces that we can experience in relationship with, with Jesus is that he enables us to not be self-defensive and to tell the truth. And this is a truth about where we are, where this building st stands, um, that this uh, stands on a whole lineage of some pretty, some, of treaty breaking, of um, violence, and of all kinds of bad things. Uh, perpetrated by people who look like me, um, and I've, I didn't ask for this, nobody asked for this, this is the world that we're in, and it's easy for me to, it's optional for me to acknowledge this or not, and so today I choose to acknowledge it and to, um, to tell that truth, and where, what that is going to continue to do to me, I don't know. Um, but it is good to be on the journey of learning to tell the truth. And learning to tell the truth, um, despite discomfort, ties very well into what I want to talk about today. And that's, um, this is like, this is like my sermon series, and I'm talking about things as Christians that we don't like to talk about all the good reasons not to be a Christian, all the good reasons to leave the faith, all the good reasons to uh, say goodbye to the church that, that we have tended to create uh, in, our, in our churches and in our Christianities and our traditions, all the bad things we've done in God's name. Um, and so I like, to, I like to talk about these things because I think they're the things that we try and avoid. We like to talk about Jesus as love, and that's pretty good, and he is. But we, we, we like to sometimes use that as a crutch to not talk about some weighty issues. And in so doing, we avoid, I think, um, what grace might actually be. And so... <laughs> Today, <clears throat> today I'm going to uh, talk about one of uh, the many uh, passages. Now, see, symbolically, I hold this up, right? And immediately, this calls to mind a lot of images of preachers that are gonna they're gonna lift this book up and they're gonna use it as a weapon, right? To to hurt and to exclude. And to say, this is how God is angry with the person or the group of people that I am against. And that's an all too typical move that's made. And there's lots of material to draw from. This is a text full of terrors and of horrible things. And, and that's one of the things I'm going to talk about today. Because the question 
the question at the heart of so much um, badness in, in the historical church and Christianity is the question, is God violent? Is God a God of violence? Is God not only just a God of love, but is God a God of violence? Does he smite his enemies? Well, if you read particularly many parts of the Old Testament, the answer is yes. Not only that, but here as we get into, this is uh, 1 Samuel 15. So the context here is this is the first king of Israel. Uh, Israel demanded a king like the other nations, and they got a guy named Saul. And so Saul is doing the thing that uh, ancient uh, Near Eastern kings did, was they went to war a lot, because that's, there was a lot of, uh, there was many kingdoms in the ancient Near East, and they were basically constantly at war with one another. And Israel wasn't a very large nation, so they had to be pretty defensive and do a lot of fighting. And so like everyone else, they had their god, they called him uh, Yahweh, and they believed that he was on his side, because we always believe that God is on our side. God is on our side against them. And so there was a prophet named Samuel who had anointed Saul as the king. And, and here, here's, here's the lovely things uh, that Samuel came to Saul saying. It says, uh, yeah, 1 Samuel 15. For Samuel, uh, Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish the Amalekites for what they did in opposing the Israelites when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and attack Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So in modern terminology, we would call this genocide, that Samuel is saying that God, their God, Yahweh, is commanding genocide of the Amalekite people. And not only this, but Saul goes on to destroy them in battle, but not uh, do the genocide thing, for which uh, Samuel says, now God's mad at you, and you're not going to be king for much longer. <laughs> so this... So if you want to read that God is a violent God... Who, who has his, that in some way, shape, or form is, is violent. There's ample uh, material in, in this set of books, uh, particularly the Old Testament, but you can, you can do some pretty good reading even in parts of the New Testament, especially the book of Revelation, that God is an angry, violent God. Um, and there's a lot of uh, gymnastics that a lot of folks do to um, try to reconcile this picture against uh, the loving God we see in Jesus in the New Testament. God is love. God is giving God's self for us on the cross. Um, and so, so, there's a, so there's a few things that we can do with this because, I mean, we, we read this, right? We read this and we're disgusted. This feels horrible. This feels disgusting. And if you don't, if you don't have that reaction to reading a passage like this, um, that would be very surprising to me. Um, and and churches have done a very good job again of basically saying, "Yep, this is what it's like to be on the other side of God's wrath." And there will be a pretty quick 
extension of the group of people today that that wrath is also uh, that that God is angry against and would justify violence against that would be a pretty quick move to be made most of the time Um, so there's a few things we can do with this Um, now the the first option isn't really an option so we won't even call this number one the zeroth option is to ignore it um, and to just pretend that this isn't in this book that we say is the book that we draw uh, our teachings from. To say, nope, no, we'll just pretend it's not there. We'll just, you know, focus on the New Testament. Um, that's, that's a move that a lot of people make. Um, but I don't, I'm not, I'm not going to have that option today. Um, so the first option is that God is always justified in whatever God does. God can command genocide because God is God, you know. God's thoughts are not our thoughts. God's ways are not our ways. God can do whatever God wants. Whatever is good is whatever God wants. And so God can command genocide, and then that's a good thing. So that's, that's a move. Um, that's a move that's pretty popular um, in a lot of the kinds of churches uh, that, that, that you hear uh, saying a lot of angry things. It's pretty popular in the kind of church that I was raised in. God gets to do whatever God wants. And if it, that includes commanding genocide, so be it. If that includes commanding basically genocide against the whole earth and the flood, sure, sweet. Uh, that's, 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 that's God's prerogative because it's God's world. Um, so, so, that's, so that's one option. And, um, and this, is, this is precisely one of the positions that uh, many Christians take that uh, is really good at producing atheists, because atheists look at this uh, with disgust, and rightly so, I think. I mean, I'd I'd say it's better to be an atheist than to hold that position, that that, that God is a God who sometimes commands genocide, and that that's a good thing. Um, The second option is that uh, God has changed. Uh, God used to do that, but God's not in the genocide business anymore. God's like, you know, mellowed out with age. You know, he, he used to be pretty uptight, and he got a bit more chill, kind of like my grandpa, right? <laughs> right? He used to be, like, pretty rigid, and, you know, he's loosened up with age. He's seen a few things. The world doesn't fit into all of his categories anymore. You know, he's a little more tolerant. And, and so that's... Um, that's a kind of idea that we can have, and um, and that's that's an attractive one. Uh, the, the notion that kind of God is undergoing evolution with us. Uh, there's some pretty fun stuff that you can explore there uh, with process theology, if you've ever heard of that. Um, but that's not an that's not an option that I'm particularly interested in. I won't get into all the reasons, but I mean, one of them is that. God, if God is not um, this kind of um, constant, unchanging God, um, then then the notion of some notion of what whatever eternal life might be, and particularly in the here and now, um, starts to starts to get a bit sketchy. Um, the third option, though, is to to read these accounts differently. Is to read an account like this. And to interpret it differently, 
And, um, you know, it's probably obvious at this point that this is uh, the approach that I'm going to recommend, that, that there are different ways to read these texts um, that don't include believing that you have to take the text at its face value. Because remember, these are a human, like these texts are, were written by humans for very human reasons. They weren't just written to record history. They were recorded, um, you know, there, there wasn't somebody like at this battlefield meeting taking notes. These were stories that were told many generations, many centuries later for very specific, generally political reasons. Um, in this particular case, I mean, I don't need to get too in-depth into that, but in this particular case, uh, biblical scholars believe that what was actually going on here, this is at, um, when, most, when most of the Old Testament was written down was the period in and around when uh, the nation of Judea was in exile in Babylon. And, and most of this was written down in the time just after they had uh, gotten back. So, you know, they, they had oral traditions, but this wasn't like a very literate culture. You had some people who could read and write, but not very many. And so they would tell each other stories. They had this whole collection of oral traditions that they would tell each other about who they are. But when they wrote these down in that time after returning from Babylon, basically what was going on was the elites had... The elite Jews had gone off to Babylon, and now they'd come back, and they're basically in, in a power struggle with those who had been left behind because they've become too intermarried with all of the neighboring tribes. And so, so the Jews who came back wanted everything to be very pure, and they were commanding everyone that you shouldn't be mixed up with all of these. And if you have, like, say, an Amalekite wife, you should divorce her. Uh, and, and get out of that marriage because we need to be pure Jews. So that's actually the kind of background for the, the reason that this story is written down because it was, it was kind of a way to say, hey, look, God wanted us to kill them all in the first place, so you shouldn't be marrying them, right? Saul was judged by God as unfaithful for not, you know, for taking off some of the spoils of war. So hint, hint, nudge, nudge, don't want to make God angry like God was angry at Saul, so make sure you keep yourself separate from these people. That's basically what's going on here. Um, at least that is, that is the uh, position of many biblical scholars today. But this now starts to... This now starts to throw the whole, the whole thing, particularly for those of us who grew up very evangelical and like this is the word of God and inspired and you gotta take it literally and everything that it attributes to God here is something that you need to attribute to God or else why bother believing? Um, well, I don't think that that's actually something that we need to do. Uh, for starters, uh, the biblical witness is that the word of God is a person named Jesus um, and or that the word of God is incarnate in a person named Jesus of Nazareth, and that this is a witness um, to, to the history of, of God's becoming in, in the world in a way that we could understand God. And so the, so the way to read this is through the lens uh, of what Jesus came to do. And these were Jesus' scriptures, right? When, when Jesus came around, these were the scriptures he was playing with, toying with. Uh, seeing himself with, embedded within this story. And 
So one of the particularly interesting things in first century Palestine, when Jesus was doing his thing, when Jesus came on the scene, well, the Jews had come back from Babylon and met with basically one disaster after another as they reclaimed their land. They, uh, the, the, uh, the Babylonians were um, quickly conquered uh, by the Greeks under Alexander the Great. And Alexander the Great didn't last so long, and everything fell apart. And then there was uh, the Seleucids ruling over them, which was because the whole Greek empire broke into pieces. And so the Jews had basically spent the last approximately 400 years under the boot of one empire over the other. At the time of Jesus, it was the empire of Rome. And so they, they had, they were longing to get back to the days when they ruled themselves, when they, they had their own king, and when they weren't under the boot heel of, of some empire. Um, and this is precisely why we have a lot of trouble um, reading uh, these scriptures um, uh, particularly anyone who looks like me, um, I'm the empire, right? Like that's the position that we occupy, that, that someone like me occupies in the world. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a settler. I'm an oppressor. I'm, I'm an occupier. I'm not an occupied. I don't understand what it's like to be in that position because I'm on the other side of that. I'm much more like the Romans. And so this is one of the reasons that we have a really hard time reading this book, because we have the wrong perspective, we have the wrong set of eyes, or, I, or at least especially someone like, who looks like me. And so within this tradition, um, there, uh, there, there were various uh, prophets and teachers in, in Israel, and uh, one of them... One of them is recorded in the book of Isaiah. Even Isaiah isn't just Isaiah, it's probably about three authors. Um, and so, so in, this, in this later part of Isaiah, there starts to be a prophecy that God is going to deliver his people. And now remember, again, in this ancient world, God is the God who's on our side against them, destroy our enemies, right? This God of violence. God is not violent towards us, although maybe allows violence towards us for our own good because we're disobedient sinners, that kind of a notion. That's how they explain the fact that they've been under the boot heel of various empires throughout history. But God is going to come and deliver us. We're oppressed. God is going to come and deliver us. And so here in Isaiah 61 is, is a passage like this expressing the hopes of a people. God will come. And deliver us. So Isaiah 61 says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me. He has sent me to bring good news to the oppressed, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and release to the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to provide for those who mourn in Zion, to give them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning the mantle of praise instead of a faint spirit. So there's this, things are going to change, things are going to be different. We will be victorious. Our God will lead us into victory, the day of vengeance of our God. And so this is the scripture that exists when Jesus comes on the scene. And what, what Jesus does at the beginning of his ministry as he reads from this scroll. He's, he's just started his ministry. He comes to his hometown, 
in, uh, in Nazareth. Um, he, had, he had just started his ministry. He had just, been, uh, he had just been doing some things in and around Capernaum. And then he comes to Nazareth. And so this is Luke 4, verse 16, which says, uh, When he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, as was his custom, being a good, observant Jew. Um, Jesus wasn't white. Um, he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. (coughs) And so at this point, at this point, the crowd would have been saying, yes, yes, and and he, he, he drops it right at this point. He stops short. He doesn't read the next one. He doesn't read, and the day of the vengeance of our God. That's the next line in Isaiah 61. But he stops. And, and the people would have been like, finish it. Like, like ah, he, left it. So he, he leaves them hanging. That would have been, there would have been this tension in the air, like, this is destabilizing. This is the story because the story we're telling ourselves is that someone's going to come and lead us, and we're going to kick those Roman bums out, and we're going to rise up, and God will be on our side in the day of vengeance of our God. <coughs> and so there's just tension. <coughs> Well, I'm headed that far. (laughs) So, he rolled up the scroll. (coughs) He sat back down and they're all looking at him. Like, what are you doing? You didn't, this is like one of the greatest hits. We love this thing, but you didn't do it right. <laughs> oh, this is awesome. Um, and then he says, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. <coughs> and so here's Jesus, he's he's reinterpreting his tradition. He's reading his tradition differently. He's Refusing to participate in this violent vengeance, even against oppressors, who his people were very oppressed, actually. (coughs) Oh, this is wonderful. Um, And so he, so that's, that's how he opens his ministry, by saying, I'm reading this tradition against the tradition. I'm deploying this tradition, these scriptures, against our usual way of understanding them. And, and not only that, uh, just, sub, just after this, he talks about um, 
like right, right in, in the rest of this passage, he talks about how God displayed favor to non-Jews, to um, a widow at Zarephath and Sidon, and there were many lepers in Israel at the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed except for Naaman the Syrian. <coughs> and so what he's saying is the favor of our God does not just rest on the Jews. The favor of our God is for everyone. It's not us against them. God is for everybody, even our enemies. When they heard this, all in the synagogue were filled with rage. They got up, drove him out of town, and led him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so they might hurl him off the cliff. So they didn't really like this. They got it. Because he was saying, God is not on our side. God is not on anybody's side. God is not against anyone. God is for everyone. God is not one of the gods. This is, and so this is the trajectory of the entire uh, Hebrew scriptures already. Our God is not like those other gods, and they'd been wrestling with this because their God lost. They kept losing over and over and over again, and so they had to come. They were wrestling because in this world, God is the God who's on our side against them, and if our God loses, our God is a loser God. And we're a loser people, so we should like move on and worship the gods of the winner people. But they didn't. And so they were starting to divorce the notion. They were starting to, but this is a very hard thing to do when everyone around you has this same conception of God, that God is on our side against them. And so the God, though, that Jesus comes proclaiming is a God who isn't like that. A God who is... <coughs> not involved in our violence, not supporting our violence, not condoning our violence. A God who is actually, not only that, a God who reveals our violence here quickly, right? And in, in, in Jesus' inauguration of his ministry, he reveals that the violence is in us. They try and kill him, they try and lynch him, they try and drive him off a cliff. They succeed in lynching him a few years later when the uh, religious and uh, military authorities get together to uh, crucify him. Um, but here, here they already tried very early on because he was destabilizing this notion of identity, this notion of identity that's rooted in violence, that's rooted in I know who I am by who I'm not, by who I hate, by who I know the God that I worship because the God that I worship is the one who sides with me against my enemies. And what Jesus here is saying is that the gospel he's coming to proclaim is that God is not on anybody's side against anybody else. God is the God who is for everyone. He's not even for just Jews, right? And, and that's, what he, that's what he quickly says here. God's favor does not respect our usual boundaries. And of course, this is the way this, and, and our usual boundaries are maintained um, <coughs> with violence, us against them. Um, whether, it's, whether it's within a community, right? Or whether it's a community uh, and a group and a nation against another nation. This is how we know who we are by who we hate. But, and, and, and we know that God is on our side against them. And so what Jesus comes preaching and proclaiming is, is a God who's not like that. This is the God that he calls um, his father. 
And he says, I only do what I see my father doing. And he says things like that. Um, later, later when, when after Jesus' death and attested resurrection um, in, in, the, in the early church community, they would start to write things like, God is light, in him there is no darkness at all. They're starting to get this whole notion that God is not a God of violence, God is not a God who hates, God is love, that that is God's very being. God is light, God is love. Um, <clears throat> and, and so one of the, one of the interesting things uh, that, that a lot of people will say uh, about the Bible is that, like, I can't believe in this because there's so much violence in it. And, um, and I get where you're coming from with that. But one of the reasons um, I, I believe um, that this is speaking to something very deep and true about who we are and about who God is is precisely because of all the violence. Precisely because it reveals, in very unflattering terms, the violence that we are all participating in all the time. Um, whereas, um, whereas a lot of other groups um, tend to kind of cover over their participation. They, they tell stories about themselves that flatter themselves, that are deceiving, that are self-deceptive. And this starts to lay it out all on the table. It starts to make it very clear. And that's one of the things that Jesus was doing in his life and his death and his resurrection was to show us the depths of what we're caught up in with violence, that the angry God has never been God. The angry God has always been us, right? The bloodthirsty God is always us, that this is something we see time and again in human history. And I mean, the church sort of like got it for the first few centuries, but then they became the empire, and then they just became just like everyone else. God is on our side against them. So then you get, you know, you get crusades, and you get inquisitions, and you get, you get, you know, <laughs> colonialism, and empire, and residential schools, and you get this, God is on our side against them, and that's who, and, and so you get that. But what you see here is how Jesus deeply destabilizes this by how he reads this tradition against the tradition, by how he selectively appropriates parts of it and, and, and helps us. And, and, and the whole point here isn't to make us, isn't to make us um, <clears throat> feel bad about ourselves because we're caught up in this, right? Like, that's, that's something that's very easy to do. This is very easy to get discouraged when we see our complicity in, like, these systems of violence um, and, and that are still going on today, right? Like, like colonialism, like, you know, the, the way that global capitalism works, the way that my clothes were made by some kid somewhere for next to nothing, right? All, all, of, all of these structural violences that constitute the way that we live. But what, what Jesus does and is doing, I believe, is a form of like a grace that we precisely see this and recognize this just all at the same time as we find ourselves being forgiven for this. 
that, that there is there is this logic that happens in Jesus letting us kill him and showing us that his type of life, that the life of God is such that it is so much um, stronger, deeper, more abundant than, than all of our violence that we're caught up in. And we can start to live in that kind of life instead, that we, we can start to imitate the way that he lived in the world, which was not securing not securing um, his being, his sense of self, his identity by who he was against, but rather drawing on the plentiful life and resources of the God that he calls his father time and again, that we can draw on that kind of a life so that we can have a being and identity that is for everyone and we can find ourselves receiving a grace to start to live in that kind of a way, to start repenting of all of the ways that we've built a life and a being that is against, that we, we, we get to repent of being that angry God and using that angry God to justify and excuse the things that we do. We get to experience that as a kind of joy. Um, the theologian uh, that, that I've been reading a lot of named James Allison, he calls this the joy of being wrong. And that that's, that's the grace and the forgiveness and the different, very different, interrupting kind of life that Jesus starts to bring on the scene to say that you're all running around doing this kind of thing. You're all doing this running around trying to secure yourselves with violence. And you don't have to do that anymore. You never had to do that. I was never on the side of anyone against anyone. Everyone belongs. We're all a part of each other. And, and so this is this is the kind of thing that Jesus came to do, at least that I believe. And this is this is this this is a God worth following, in my opinion. This is a God worth signing up to follow, not the God who commands genocide, but the God who enables us to see and repent of the violence within our hearts that would make us want to commit genocide, and the the, the kind of the kind of God who allows us to, to actually become human, perhaps for the first time, instead of an angry God. And so that, so that is, that is a gospel, that is good news. The good news is that God is not the God of genocide, but the God of love, in whom there is no darkness at all. And that Jesus, precisely by revealing violence, by letting us do violence to him, to his own body, Helped us to see that, and helped us to, and, and and continues to help us to to see that, to experience it, to experience that grace. Um, so that, to me, is is a real gospel, something worth following, something worth learning from, learning to live more in that way, um, in, in a way that isn't against. So that's about what I have today. I managed to break off the coughing fit. And uh, I'm going to drink some water now, and if people have some questions, please ask them.
this is not a question, but mm -hmm. uh, more of a uh, comment. Uh, it was great to, to listen to that because I almost saw Jesus as a man struggling, not struggling, but by example, showing people this that you're explaining, mm -hmm. uh, how it was rubbed up uh, with a bit. Mm -hmm. So I was, yes. and the consequence of that too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we, we don't like it very much. Our, our default response is to react violently against the exposure of our of our ways. Yeah. understand it in its context and try to understand that the people writing these texts had an agenda right within a very specific place in a very specific time they were trying to push an agenda within like concrete historical realities so that's where I was saying there about it like this Samuel passage being kind of actually about like racial intermarriage at a certain point in history where there was a certain group within Israel that had a certain agenda that said they didn't want that mixing to happen. So then you, I mean, so, so to get that, you've got to like kind of nerd out on like a lot of like Bible commentary kind of stuff and read people who do that kind of stuff. You don't have to go that far into things to see. <coughs> I mean, the, 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 the basic question is, does this, does this look like Jesus? Does, does this thing being attributed to God sound like Jesus? Or, in its historical context, was this maybe like a, like a lessening of violence? Right? Um, like, it, I mean, I didn't get into this, but... Um, one, one, of the, one of the reasons that we can recognize this violence is that we've lived in a world that has had these gospel texts for 2,000 years. That this is... Because normal stories of violence are, are usually, a, usually stories about a group coming together and to, to, to excuse and justify power, right? Like, like history is told from the perspective of the victors. So what the Gospels are really interesting is their story that's told from the perspective of a loser, right? Um, like Jesus lost. He, he got executed by the state and by his like religious uh, community. And, and yet the early church called that actually a victory over the powers and principalities, right? And so when you're reading these Old Testament texts, do you see 
a kind of like subversion, or do you see this like regular, normal kind of support of of power, of dominance, right? Or do you see like it's starting to be undermined because there's a lot of like it's starting to be undermined, uh, particularly uh, particularly in the prophets, like like in Habakkuk, in which Jesus quotes says, "Go go learn what it means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice." Right? That this is something starting to come out of the prophets. The prophets saying like attributing to God this notion that your burnt offerings like stink in my nose. You know, like desire justice and mercy, treat the outsider in your community better, and then I'll stop hating you. <laughs> and so, particular, so so those are a few things uh, that that I bring to it. Some reflections we can do even here, you can start to imagine about why it is that the one of the sacraments that we do in the church is communion, which we'll take now, which is again the the site of the violence that we visited on on Jesus, his broken body and his blood. Right? That this is that there's something that happens in there about Us starting to be able to tell the truth about who who it is that we are, <coughs> and and the grace that we can experience and receive. <coughs> so, unless there's any other questions, we'll do that now. <coughs> 